you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We come this morning to the second part of our study of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, and I hope that uh, last week was a helpful insight into what is going on when we take the bread and the cup together as a gathered church. If you weren't here last week, I do encourage you to go and listen to that. It's uh, uploaded on our website. Uh, But again, we were reminded that when we come, it's not just purely a, a reminder or a symbolic thing that we do and that's that, but we instead we, we experience something very rich, a special fellowship with Christ through His spiritual presence with us in this sacrament as He reaffirms His grace to us by the visible sign and seal of the gospel. And that was the personal benefit that God intends through the Lord's Supper that we looked at, uh, the, the, the blessing for each and every believer who receives it by faith. And today, we continue in part two of our study by now focusing on the corporate benefit of the Lord's Supper, which is really the essence of this sacrament. And we are today here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, from verses 17 down to verse 34. Let me read this for us. This is what God's Word says, beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. The Apostle Paul writes, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead With his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed and took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and the body, or eat of the bread rather, and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we have opened your word and we ask now that your spirit would open our eyes to 
understand it, to see your glory and to receive it by faith. Show us your intent for us. Teach us what you want us to know and make us what you want us to become for the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. One of the most difficult aspects of the Christian life for believers in the Western world to grasp is the concept that while salvation is personal and must be based on a personal repentance and faith and trusting relationship with Jesus, it is not individualistic. The Christian life does not exist in an isolated individual vacuum, but it exists and can only thrive in the God-ordained corporate environment of His church, the gathering of fellow born-again believers in Christ. And the reason it's so difficult for the church in the West to grasp this is because, well, Western civilization is marked by the distinct feature and emphasis of individuality. But that's why we tend to read passages like Ephesians 2a, by grace you have been saved, and think that, oh yeah, I have been saved. It's talking just to me, when in fact Paul was actually saying, by grace y'all have been saved, and I sometimes wish we were in the South. Now don't get me wrong. There are strengths to be attributed to the Western Church in their emphasis of that individual aspect of salvation. For, for example, the, the importance of one's genuine personal devotion to Christ, the emphasis on personal piety. But taken too far without proper balance, and it often is, you end up with the state of affairs today, where church is just a location that you attend once a week on Sundays, if that, and you listen to some sermons, and then you go home back into the privacy of your own life without any meaningful relationships or accountability with the other members of that church. And that's not church. Because church is, by definition, the assembly of God's people, the family of God, the household of faith. We are spiritually responsible for one another as spiritual siblings. Just as earthly siblings are expected to be responsible for one another. We cannot do the Christian life apart from each other. And this is such an important issue in the eyes of God that we see this stressed over and over again throughout the New Testament. Jesus tells his disciples, love one another. And it's by this the world will know that you are truly my disciples. And John writes in his first letter, if anyone says, I love God, but has no love for his brother... He's a liar. He doesn't know God. See, in God's mind, and according to His design, the Christian does not exist on a spiritual island, but is called to be inextricably woven into the covenant community of faith, bound by love and mutual commitment for one another. And this mindset is essential for us to maintain as we think about the Lord's Supper. Because although there is immense personal benefit, as we saw last week, this sacrament is actually a corporate blessing by its very nature. Jesus' intent in instituting communion is not just to build up each individual in his or her faith, although that too, 
But he does so for each individual member for the end goal of building up his church, strengthening his body, reinforcing the tendons and ligaments of love and fellowship that keep it all together in unity. See, sometimes I think we can approach the Lord's Supper as just a private worship experience, which we sure do in the physical presence of others, but it's just a private thing between me and the Lord. And so the Lord's Supper is effectively as though we were just at a McDonald's drive-thru during the weekday lunch rush just to get a quick bite for ourselves. And there I go again with the McDonald's reference when I never even go there. But in fact, the Lord's Supper is not just some fast food drive through for yourself individually, but rather it is like a family dinner. It is when the children of God gather around the king and dine together as members of his one household of faith. And what God is doing through communion is that by recalibrating each individual heart to the tuning fork of his grace, he is thus reharmonizing the whole body to the consonants of gospel unity in Christ. In other words, by reaffirming each individual's union with Christ, God is thereby reaffirming our union with one another in Christ. And I am convinced that the healthiest church is the church that not only practices the Lord's Supper, Rightly, but that the culture of the church, the atmosphere of the congregation, is being trained and defined by what we see in the Lord's Supper. Because then the atmosphere exudes selfless gospel love and graciousness toward one another that learns from Christ as it overflows to others. And, and we see this corporate purpose and blessing of the Lord's Supper revealed in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, but it is presented to us first in a negative sense. Now what I mean is that the Corinthians were, were an example of what not to do because they were, they were an example of horrible malpractice of the Lord's Supper. They, they missed the whole point of it. And not only that, but, but the way they practiced the Lord's Supper was resulting in increasing lovelessness and increasing self-centeredness in the congregation. It was a disaster. But in God's sovereign wisdom and providence, He used the ungodly behavior of the Corinthians as the dark backdrop against which He, he would further illuminate the truth for us in His Word. Because God used... Their sinful perversion of the Lord's Supper and inspired the Apostle Paul to rebuke them and correct them in writing so that today we would have inscripturated for us a, a lesson to teach us something about the beauty of communion as a communal blessing. You see, as we turn our focus here to 1 Corinthians 11, well, we have to first understand that the Corinthians were a hot mess. You know, they were arguably the most problematic local church that Paul ever wrote to. 
the very opposite of the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians were amazing. And Paul was just so thankful for them. And he was saying, look, whatever you guys are doing, keep doing that. Because you guys are excelling in faith and virtue. But the Corinthians, hot mess. And so I hear, you know, throughout the first letter to Corinth, this, in 1 Corinthians, throughout this whole letter, it's basically a long list of rebukes and corrections that Paul has for them. And most of their problems that we see in this letter boil down to this one fundamental issue. The church was divided. Look at how Paul starts the letter in chapter 1. He says in chapter 1, verse 10, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. This is Paul's opening thesis. Y'all are divided. Stop. Please. Now why? Why were they so divided? It's because the culture of the church was not defined by the Bible, but by, well, the culture of Corinth. The, the, the residents of Corinth, you see, it, it was a place where they loved image, reputation, Social status. The people of Corinth, they cared a lot about appearances. How they, how they appeared to others. How, how others perceived them. They valued things like net worth. Societal influence. Even special talents. And now you see why. They had a whole issue with spiritual gifts. Because the ones with the cool spiritual gifts, being able to speak in foreign languages without learning it, which God imparted to them in the first century, they were like, hey, look at me. Look what I can do. And oh, what? You have to gift them. Stacking up chairs really well? Oh, that's kind of boring. That's what was going on in 1 Corinthians. And the Christians there were allowing this, this culture to, to, to dictate their thinking and, and behavior and interactions with one another. Again, that's why, you remember when Apollos uh, became a prominent leader at Corinth, and we saw, or we see in Acts chapter 18, it tells us that Apollos was very eloquent. He was an eloquent preacher of the gospel. Well, when Apollos became a prominent leader at Corinth, they were amazed. Wow! Look at how he talks. That'd be some oration. My goodness, they became fans. They started wearing Apollos jerseys to, ch- to church. And this celebrity culture was rampant in Corinth. And, and in idolizing his eloquence, the Corinthians started saying, you know what? I'm a follower of Paul's. I'm in a Paul's camp. He's more eloquent than Paul. You know, Paul's actually not that good. That's, that's what you see in, in verse 12. What, each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Paulus, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. What are you guys doing? Was Paul crucified for you? Is Apollos your savior? This is nuts. You see, this is the context of Corinth. That's what Paul was dealing with. Lots of cliques within the church body, divisions, factions. Now we can spend all day going through the laundry list of grievances that Paul had with the Corinthian church, and you can read the whole letter for yourself this week. But I want to focus our attention now on chapter 11, as Paul takes particular issue with how they were conducting the Lord's Supper, because we find out that the Corinthians brought in this same mindset into communion. And so here Paul corrects them for how they've perverted the Lord's Supper. And he's saying, what you are doing, that is not the Lord's Supper. And 
as with many things, sometimes it can be helpful to learn what something is not in order to learn what something is. And so it's good for us to see this and ask, what were the Corinthians doing in the Lord's Supper that was so wrong? Well, look in verse 17. Paul says, I don't commend you in the following, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. Because when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Now, Paul makes clear that he's not just talking about a a general gathering and meeting and that there are being divisions, although that too. But he specifies in verse 20 that when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. Now, the Corinthians would have been confused at this point in reading this letter. What are you talking about? We've got the bread. We've got the cup. We're following protocol. What's the issue? Well, as Paul said in verse 17, when you come together, it's not bettering you as a church, but it's worsening you. Why? Verse 21. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Paul is saying, look, you've missed the whole point. Yes, you are physically coming together. Yes, you're physically eating the bread and the cup. But your spirit is far from the true meaning of the Lord's Supper. Because you're all just doing your own individual thing. Each one taking the bread and the cup, however he pleases, whenever he pleases, without any regard for the brothers and sisters next to you. Don't you understand? That is not the Lord's Supper. You are using what is meant to reinforce the bonds of unity and using it to dismantle unity in the church. You see, in the early church, the Lord's Supper was more of an actual mealtime for the church. And, you know, it's just a practical difference in what we do today for the sake of logistics and maybe even cultural differences. But during this mealtime, the, the Corinthians had become divided into pockets and cliques as they took the bread and the cup. Why? Well, notice how, how Paul describes it. One goes hungry and another gets drunk, meaning excessive consumption. What does that imply? These factions and cliques were because of different socioeconomic standings. What was probably happening was that, well, obviously, the wealthier members of the church were providing a lot of the funds and resources for the church, including the bread and the cup that would be largely distributed on a regular basis in the sacraments. And, and the less wealthy were not able to contribute as much. And not only that, but in all likelihood... Their jobs probably consisted of long hours of manual labor. Uh, Unlike the wealthy who had very flexible schedules, who had the less wealthy, uh, less educated people working for them in order to have that very flexible schedule. And so whenever the church would gather to celebrate the Lord's Supper, the the, the rich and successful members, so to speak, they would probably get there first because, well, they had a lot of free time and... People love to use church as a little social gathering and then just to see where they stack up, you know, on the, on the uh, totem pole. But the less prominent members would get there a little later because, well, they had to take the bus over a long commute during peak rush hour. Instead of being able to just drive their own sports cars during the daytime to beat traffic and get to church early, so to speak. 
And when that upper echelon subgroup of the congregation got there first, it probably says something like, hey, we're all here. The important people are here. And, you know, those other blue-collar folks, they're usually late. But hey, let's be real. We're the ones providing the goods, aren't we? We're the ones, ka-ching, ka-ching, bringing the bacon to the church. Let's go ahead and just take the bread of the cup. The important ones are here. And the Lord's Supper eventually became this big party of the elite within the church. They were eating and drinking and getting drunk and singing pirate songs. It's just a, it's a mess. And the less prominent members would come later and realize, what? You guys started without us? And they were hurt. And they felt inferior and excluded. And through this, the body of Christ there was being fractured. The lines between the various cliques within the church were thickening. As one writer notes, that attention was being drawn to their status and circumstances in the meal, in a community where these social divisions were meant to be abolished in Christ. And when Paul heard about this, he was furious. And so he writes and says, what are you doing? Why are you despising the body of Christ? You think you're taking the Lord's Supper, but it is anything but the Lord's Supper. And now you see what Paul meant in verse 27, which is often taken out of context and used uh, to kind of abuse people. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. The unworthy manner that Paul is speaking of is not if you have a speck of sin in your heart and so you should refrain from taking the cup, which we talked about last time, is wrong. And believe me, oh, we have more than a speck. I've got freckles of depravity everywhere all over my soul. But the unworthy manner of which Paul speaks is if you take the Lord's Supper in lovelessness and selfishness with respect to your brothers and sisters who are taking it with you. The unworthy manner is if you are self-absorbed and make this sacrament just about yourself without being mindful of your fellow members of Christ's body. To harbor bitterness toward one another. To feel disdain against others. Even holding on to unforgiveness against those who have wronged you. It's a relational issue. And Paul is saying, you can't take the Lord's Supper and have that because they are contradictory. And that's what Paul means when he says in verse 28, examine yourself as you take the bread of the cup because anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is not about discerning your own body but it's about discerning the body of Christ, discerning, paying attention to the rest of the church that are gathered. It's about having regard for your brothers and sisters and not being at enmity or being divided with one another. It's about loving them, especially those, especially those who are financially poor, spiritually weaker, Socially lesser? Well, that's a big one. 
How many times we come to church and we only like to talk to the people who are easy to talk to? The people that give us fun conversations and other go, ah, kind of weird. That's a big deal. And that's what causes a lot of clicks in the church, doesn't it? But we're called to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. You see, this is Jesus' intent in the Lord's Supper, to grow our love and mindfulness for one another. And this is such a serious matter in the eyes of God that Paul says in verse 30, this is why many of you have gotten sick and even died, because God is judging you. Wow-wee. Now, this doesn't mean that any time you get sick or any time you die, it's God judging you. Don't take it out of context. But it's that for these Corinthians specifically who are propagating harmful division to the church and thereby hurting many of the members, God had a particular discipline for them. And he made it specially known that he was not pleased. And isn't it amazing that on the road to Damascus, when the Apostle Paul was persecuting Christians before his conversion, and Jesus appeared to him there on the road, what did Jesus say? said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? He didn't say that. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What does this tell us? It tells us that Jesus so intimately identifies with his people. He is so in union with his people that to inflict pain on any member of his body is to directly inflict pain on him. And he takes it personally. You know, if we spill some coffee on the carpet, you won't hurt the church. You might hurt our budget. We've got to pay for it because we rent this place. <laughs> Even if we didn't, we would still have to pay for the cleaning. But if we hurt one another, it is effectively to hurt Christ. We are in no different shoes than the Roman soldier piercing Jesus on the cross. That is how much God loves and cares for his people. And so Paul gives this corrective instruction in verse 33. When you come together, wait for one another. The the supper is meant to be taken together in unity. Everyone in the same room as one family. It's, It's not just about timing. That's not the issue here. It's not about, hey, let's have synchronized eating. One, two, three, let's practice. That's that's not the issue. But it's about the spirit of oneness. He says, even if you're hungry, wait. Because it's not about the food. If you care about the food, then go eat at home. But it's about fellowship. It's about the sign and seal of Jesus' covenant love for his people. His one people. It's about fellowship with your brothers and sisters. Together, communion, communing with Christ. And Paul said, look, if you can't control your hunger, just go eat at home. Again, for the first century church, the the communion that was served was more of a full-on meal for the gathered church. But the point again here is that Paul makes it clear, communion is not something you do by yourself. It is a corporate act of worship, a corporate blessing to receive from God. And thus, it must result in the strengthening of the corporate entity as one body, rather than fracturing the body into various factions and cliques. Now, thus far, 
We've seen this corporate aspect of the Lord's Supper primarily in a negative sense. What it must not be, and that it should not lead to greater division as it had for the Corinthians. But let's now consider it positively. How exactly does the sacrament of the Lord's Supper foster greater unity in the church? In what way, when we take the bread and cup together, in what way does God use it by His Spirit to draw the members of the church closer together in harmony? Well, look at how Paul writes this whole section in the letter. Notice how in verses 17 to 22, kind of that first paragraph, and then from verses 27 to verse 34, the, the, the last portion, two paragraphs at least in my edition of the ESV, we see that in those two portions, Paul is describing it negatively, rebuking the Corinthians, exposing the error of their ways. But in the middle portion, in verses 23 to 26, is where the apostle explains it positively. And he says, verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given things, he broke it and he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. What's Paul doing here? He's taking his readers back to the first Good Friday, to the upper room, just before Jesus' betrayal and arrest and his impending crucifixion. The Corinthians evidently forgot about all this. They turned the Lord's Supper into just supper. And they forgot about the Lord Jesus altogether and what he did for sinners like them. But Paul reminds them, don't you remember? that on that day, that night, as he gave his, the bread and the cup to be taken, it's because it was pointing to what he would do that very next day, lay down his life, giving his body to be pierced, blood to be spilled. Have you forgotten? The kingdom of God is not a matter of drinking and eating, but it is a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, which is accomplished for us by our suffering Savior. He suffered for our sins. The same night, after supper, don't you remember? He, He went out to the Garden of Gethsemane, and there, in the turmoil of distress... In anticipation of the cross, he asked the Father one last time if there was any other way. Why? Because he genuinely, in his human nature, desired to escape the suffering that was prepared for him. But there in the garden, in the agony of inching towards the shadow of the cross, he said, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he went willingly to be punished for sinners and to endure eternal wrath for the sinners He came to save. He did all of this in love for His people to rescue them from their sin. Do you see why Paul is saying all this? He's implying, remember, this is how much Jesus has loved you. And not only that, this is how much Jesus has loved your brother and your sister 
whom you are despising and rejecting and leaving out and hurting. It may not be as apparent in the English because our English grammar doesn't distinguish between singular and plural in the second person. But Paul is literally saying in verse 24, remember Jesus took bread, broke it, gave things and said, this is my body which is for you guys, plural. You guys, plural, do this in remembrance of me collectively. It's a collective command. In the same way he took the cup, this cup, you guys, collectively, I command you, drink it in remembrance of me. You see, when we take the Lord's Supper, and when we are reaping the personal benefits of it, as we talked about last week, as Christ confirms His love and grace to us, well, when you take it, are you not humbled by Jesus' kindness and mercy to you? Are you not so thankful that Jesus is strong and kind? That even when you are struggling in faith and obedience, even when you've had a terrible week, He still meets you with gentleness to reaffirm the assurance of His unchanging love to you. But you are not the only one that Jesus is tending to in communion. He is showing that same grace and kindness and love to your brother and sister next to you. And all of this is meant to spark in us this thought. If Jesus loves me so much by giving me this bread and cup as a visible expression of His love, but I also see that as I take it, my brothers and sisters are receiving the same sign and seal of His love. How can I now dishonor the ones that you have loved? As we just say, beneath the cross of Jesus, see the children called by God. And I know that it's a common habit, I suppose, that during communion to close your eyes as you take the bread and the cup. And I understand, you know, it's a sincere expression of your thankfulness and praise to Christ. But in some sense, we would do well to keep our eyes open and look around as we take the bread and the cup to capture and to experience the full effect of what the Lord wants to do in our hearts to help us be mindful of how much He loves the brothers and sisters next to us as well. Now, I'm just giving you the sense, okay, I'm not trying to micromanage what you do with your eyelids and make rules where the Bible doesn't make them, okay? You can close your eyes. I'm not going to come and rip them open when you take the bread and the cup because the point is that God wants us to be aware of how much He loves not only just you, but your brothers and sisters around you as personally and as intimately as He cares for you. Even those, especially those, you don't naturally get along with. Those you maybe sometimes get easily annoyed by. Those who may have offended you in the past or will offend you in the future. And the intended effect of the Lord's Supper is for us to feel in our hearts. If Christ is so patient with me, every day, every week, 
and specially reminded of that in this sacrament. What grounds do I have to be impatient with my brother or sister who may, whom I may not get along with as easily as I would like? If Christ is so merciful to me despite my struggles with sin, and He knows the darkness of my heart, how can I ever judge my fellow members in their struggle with sin? But I am reminded to be gentle with them, just as the Lord has been and will always be gentle with me. You see, the Lord's Supper fosters an atmosphere of grace and the church. This is the purpose of communion, to humble each one of us with the gospel, to invoke love and selfless regard for, for one another, and to suffuse the atmosphere with the fragrance of His grace. You see, God is strengthening His family unit through this sacrament. He is tightening the bonds of love and peace in Christ. He, he shepherds His family by helping us see our spiritual siblings through spiritual eyes. That we might see, ah, here is my brother for whom Christ died. Here is my sister for whom Christ suffered in agony. Oh, how I long to love my brother, to love my sister the way Christ loves him or her. How I long to pray for him, to pray for her. I am my brother's keeper. I am my sister's keeper. This is my eternal family. Those who hear the word of God and do it. And what a blessing it is to dine together in the presence of our Savior and Lord. And you see, in this way, the Lord's Supper is truly a foretaste of heaven. Because again, what, what it is depicting is not just a private one-on-one meal with Jesus as individuals, but here we are by faith gathered around the table of the King. Sons and daughters of the Most High, the family of God rejoicing in the fellowship of Christ, in the spirit of love, joy, and peace as the blessed children of God. And this is what heaven is. And this is what heaven will be. In fact, this is what the heavenly experiences of supreme happiness and satisfaction throughout redemptive history has always been depicted as. God's people enjoying a meal with Him in His presence. Think about from the very beginning of creation. In the paradise of the Garden of Eden, before sin entered the world, what was the blessing given for Adam and Eve to enjoy? To eat of every tree in the garden, except for one. But they were given a feast to enjoy in God's presence as God Himself walked among them. In the Exodus, as the glory and majesty of God would be revealed in Egypt in the 10th plague, but God promised to be with them and deliver them from the death that would befall Egypt. What was the expression of God's life-giving presence to the Israelites? A Passover, a meal to be eaten. God's people enjoying this meal in His gracious presence as He was with them and for them, not against them. And after they left Egypt, 
And the glory of God descended on Mount Sinai and they saw fire and smoke ravaging that whole mountain and the holy presence of God descending from heaven. There God would reveal His holy law to Israel, making a covenant with them. And then it says in Exodus 24 that Moses took Aaron, his sons, and 70 elders of Israel up the mountain. And they saw the God of Israel, as it were. And they saw under His feet a pavement of sapphire stone, this exquisite clarity and brilliance that could not be described with human words. And then what did they do in that magnificent presence of God? It says in Exodus chapter 24, verse 11, they beheld God and ate and drank. A meal enjoyed in God's presence. On and on we can go through all the pages of Scripture, but all of these snapshots are culminating to this glorious end in Revelation chapter 19. As John sees the innumerable multitude of God's people in heaven, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, it says. And what is this? What is going on? The angel explains, this is the marriage supper of the Lamb. The ultimate eternal meal in the presence of God, never to leave. A glorious return to Eden, yet of greater glory than Eden because it's not just Adam and Eve. But it is the incalculable number of God's redeemed people throughout all ages and generations who have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, healed by the wounds of His pierced body, who have been gathered to proclaim eternally, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Beloved, this is what is being signified whenever the Lord's Supper is received by faith in the gathered local church. It is a foretaste of heaven. And that's why Paul reminds us in verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until... He comes. There is an anticipation of the future. And when we take communion as a church, it is as though we are together caught up to heaven to experience a a foretaste of that eternal joy that awaits us when Jesus returns to consummate His kingdom. And we will forever experience the bliss of dining together in the presence of our Creator, our Redeemer, our most high king, whose children we have become by faith. Church, there is nothing, nothing on earth that comes remotely close to this wondrous reality. There is no community, no club, no co-op, no sports team, no fan base, no fraternity, no military camaraderie that holds a candle to what we do as God's children on earth, receiving by faith this sacrament of His covenantal love together. The Lord's Supper is His ordained means of grace to help us to together love Christ and to love one another by receiving His immense love for us as displayed on the cross 
on which his body was broken and his blood poured out for us. And so then, with this in mind, let us, as often as we come together to take the Lord's Supper, let us by faith gather around the table of our King and receive with praise and thanksgiving the meal of grace that He prepares for us by His Spirit. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank You for this incredible, unfathomable plan of salvation, of redemption, as You gather a people unto Yourself set apart from the world, a people who are not deserving, a people who are rightfully condemned along with the rest of the world. But by Your Spirit, You have birthed new life in us that we would come to You, trust in You, and to be adopted into Your family. We thank You for giving to us this sign and seal of Your love for us, which even represents our adoption as Your children in Christ and the security of our belonging in the household of faith. And now as we prepare to receive this sacrament that you have so graciously given to us, we ask that you would bless this ordinary bread and this ordinary cup, and that by your Spirit, you would use it to minister to us, and even to strengthen the bonds of this church for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.